Today's message was uh, written out to be read just in case my return from the 2023 Shepherds Conference at Grace Community Church was delayed. Uh, John chapter 2 was selected because it was one of the portions for reading from the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading schedule today. And the message title is, Do Whatever He Tells You, taken primarily from our primary text in John chapter 2, verse 5. It says, uh, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. This is the word of the Lord, and he will most certainly bless the reading of his holy truth, and let us, let us pray. Our Father in God, in the most holy and mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray, we praise your goodness, your greatness and your grace. You have declared that your steadfast love will be built forever, and that in the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Yet our flesh is weak and our hearts often fail, so forgive us and cleanse us by the precious shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the triumph of Christ's atoning sacrifice upon the tree and his powerful resurrection. Thank you for the blessed assurance of salvation in, by, and through Christ Jesus alone. Oh, Heavenly Father, as the heavens praise your wonders, may your people declare your ways. Father, give us attentive ears that we may hear your word and heed your truth. Father, give us, give us eternal eyes that we may see our Lord Jesus Christ with the grace of faith. Father, give us humble, broken, and contrite hearts that we may live for Jesus a life that is true, as we just sang today, striving to please him in all that we do, willing to suffer affliction and loss, deeming each trial a part of our cross. In Jesus' name, amen. As the Sunday school folks know that I need a new reading glasses prescription, so if I cry, it doesn't matter because I can't see with these glasses anyway. <laughs> this first chapter of John's Gospel, in the prologue, we are presented with the eternal Son of God, the Word incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. John the Baptist, the Lord's cousin, points out to his own disciples, he points out Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, according to John 1 and verse 29. And among G John's disciples who began following Jesus were uh, John and Andrew, the fishermen from Capernaum, and uh, Andrew's brother Peter, 
And then Philip and Nathaniel also uh, had joined. And then in chapter 2, we have three major sections. Uh, first, Jesus turning water to wine in verses 1 through 12. And then uh, second, we have in verses 13 to 22, the Lord uh, Jesus turns over the money changers' tables you know, at the beginning of his ministry. And finally, the third part is just three verses. John provides a commentary in verses 23 to 25 that Jesus placed his trust in no man because he, as it says here, knew what was in man. Now here are a few more details from these sections because any time that we read a chapter, we've taken to the habit of uh, looking over it and even finding some application as we see the chapter in whole. There's many more things that we can dig into, certainly. But in verses 1 and 2, first of all, we see Jesus attended a wedding at Cana in Galilee, being invited with his disciples. And in verse 3, the supply of wine for the celebration had run out, and Mary let Jesus know they have no wine. And the Lord's response was not dishonoring to his mother, in verse 4, when he said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? In the King James Version, it's somewhat turned around. What have I have to do with thee? In the King James Version. My hour has not yet come. Now how could it be dishonoring, is the question. How could it possibly be dishonoring if Jesus is the incarnate Son of God who is perfect? If he was the voice of the burning bush and spoke ever and always what was, is, and evermore shall be true. One of the bridegroom's duties in that ancient Jewish culture was to supply the wine sufficient for the wedding guests. Whether he hired someone or even among the poor was able to, you know, get it himself. Sometimes the vineyard owner would be able to provide the wine, but he still provided it through the servants and in his household who provided the service to his vineyards. And this was not Jesus' wedding. He was invited along with his disciples. And we understand later on in the chapter also with his, his family members. So Jesus being the oldest in his family, um, he would certainly have been invited. So we're guessing that at least they were acquainted with Jesus and Mary and Jesus' younger half-brothers and sister, half-sisters. But Jesus would, uh, this was not Jesus' wedding. Jesus' time had not yet come because his bride was not yet ready. Jesus would supply the wine for his wedding yet to be at his second coming as it is written in Revelation 19 and verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Moreover, Jesus by his words was pointing out that he could not do such a thing as her son, but as God's son, which he did. And we'll cover it in a little bit more detail because that's 
the situation surrounding our primary verse today. Now, while the Lord Jesus' thoughtful saying was bubbling within Mary's heart, I would suggest, Mary turned to the servants in verse 5 and said, Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, notice also that these are the last recorded words of Mary in the Scripture. Though we do see her at the cross and Jesus addresses her, these are her last recorded words. Do whatever he tells you. I love that. In verse 6, the six empty stone jars or jugs, as brother, young brother Aiden had read the chapter to us in the English Standard Version, they were nearby of about 20 or 30 gallons each. Uh, the, that's the King James firkin. If you're a firkin measurer, that's because it comes from the King, that's the King James Version. But it's, we understand that it's 20 or 30 gallons each. And they were used for ceremonial washing because the Jews had a tradition called urkats. And the yeah, rakats means, Stefan, Rakatz means uh, the washing, and they take it from Abraham, uh, bringing water to uh, for the hands of those that were at the plain of Mamre, the three visitors that he had to wash wash their hands. Urkatz is the Jewish tradition, and they used it for purifying. And twenty or thirty gallons meant it was probably a household that was large enough that they wanted to have a good supply of water for doing this, because they, the traditional rabbinical Jews, the Pharisaical Jews, they would do this at every meal. Wash your hands, Lord. We we bless you, Lord God of the universe, who's given us the command of washing, or really the tradition of washing, urkatz. So in verse 7, Jesus told the servants to entirely fill the jars with water. The, it says filled in the English Standard Version, but the Greek word means to, to fill completely. And they did exactly what Jesus said. They filled it to the brim. And in verses 8 and 9, at his command, Jesus told them to draw some liquid out to give to the master of the feast. Now the master or the governor governor in the King James Version, and some of the commentaries, they suggest that this may have been uh, the person that was the caterer who provided the wine. But by his words, we recognize this is someone else. And I suggest to you that this master governor is the guest of honor, because you would always have in that ancient wedding ceremony you would always have somebody at any feast you would have for the jews a person who was a guest of honor you have the host you have the guest of honor and then you would have people ranked around as they reclined at the table we see this in the last supper of the lord jesus whereas uh jesus had told the disciples whoever is greatest among you will be the least and servant of all so peter takes the place all the way across the table from jesus and john is leaning on his breast and the place of honor was judas iscariot that way he was so close that when jesus was reclining that's the one who's going to betray me he would take it and place it in his mouth just over his shoulder he was in the place of honor judas was 
So the master of the governor was probably most honored guest at the feast because once he tested the wine in verse 10, he exclaimed, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. That's why we know he wasn't the one that was providing the wine. He, was the, he got to taste it. He was the guest of honor. He would have had the first taste of it. The best wine until now. Now in the second section, moving right along, and you know, don't worry, we'll get to the to that one too, because it's a very this chapter is very exciting to me because it has three great sections in it, and we could spend sermon after sermon, not just three sermons, several sermons, looking at the nuances that are here in the gospel imagery. In the second section of this chapter, beginning in verse thirteen, Jesus and his disciples ascend to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This episode contrasts the first as we see that during the wedding feast in Cana in Galilee, the Lord Jesus supplied their lack, but at the temple, Jesus attacks their lavishness and religious greed. Finding those selling sacrificial animals and exchanging foreign money for the temple shekel. Jesus made a whip of cords and drove them out of the temple and overturned their tables in verses 14 through 17. And in verse 18, the religious Jews demanded a sign from Jesus to prove his authority to do such a thing. And in verses 19 to 20, we see that Jesus used the parable to speak of his crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And in the text, we have many wonderful things we could look at we recognize that the most common term which we i mentioned in sunday school today the most common term we have in the bible for the temple that was standing in that day is house house of the lord house of jehovah house of god or just plain house and temple as far as the new testament is though it does reflect especially by unbelievers like these religious Jews, it reflects the for them the building. But for we who have eyes to see and ears to hear, temple is often spoken of as the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit or bodies. Even tabernacle is used in that way. Or fleshly tabernacles in which the Holy Spirit dwells. These places that are temporary abodes for us to worship our almighty God. And the third section, these three verses are also filled with wonder. Third section of this chapter, verses 23 to 25, is basically the apostles' commentary. The apostle John presents this commentary, and apparently the Lord Jesus did many signs before the people during the seven-day Passover celebration, also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as a result, in verse 23, many people believed in his name. Nevertheless, as we see in verses 24 and 25, Jesus was not moved emotionally, fancifully, or irrationally by entrusting in what men confessed or conferred. Because he knew by God's word what fallen men were all about. Young people, I use two words there, confessed or conferred. Because one, that men confessed, they believed that he was the Messiah. 
But he wasn't moved just because someone said he's the Messiah or conferred. Even though in their thinking, in their understanding, they placed that title on him. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. And that didn't affect Jesus because the Scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 that Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, he's unmoved by that. Though he loves his people and is gracious to his people, when Jesus came, he had a particular plan. And he was not going to be stirred or moved by it. Plus, it tells us something else. Because we do have this, uh, uh, the brief application from this chapter. And, but let's take a look. Let's look at all of the little brief things that we can get from the chapter overall. First, from our first episode, we have a tip. Uh, some advice for our young people, the children. Because we need to obey our parents, don't we, young people? And Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So you, young people, you, young people, you, young people, back there have two responsibilities to obey and honor. Now, obedience is simple. It means to do what you're told. Mom says to do something, and you do it. Dad says to do something, you do it. That's pretty simple, cut and dry. But what does it mean to honor your parents? We see in this episode that Jesus did honor his mother Though he says something, to, in our thinking, sometimes it seems like he dishonored them, uh, dishonored her. What have I to do with you? Do you not know it's not yet my time? But see, as her son, he had a greater calling now as the son of God and as the Messiah. So now, after his baptism, which doesn't go over that in chapter 2. His ministry has already started. He is the eternal Son of God. And when he speaks, he is now her God, her Messiah. So he does have the permission to bring her greater honor as one who is subject to God. How does this work? Well, Jesus spoke the truth about who he was, what he came to do, and when he was to do it. And when we obey our parents, we are to honor them by doing for them as we would do it for the Son of God. When we obey our parents, we honor them by exalting Jesus in our obedience according to the truth of his holy word, the Bible. Now next, from our second episode, in verses 15 to 17 in particular, we see a truth for God's child concerning worship. And that means not just you young people, it means us older young people, me included. True worship of God in Christ is a matter of communion with God for His glory and not an opportunity for commerce and gain. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, as I know all my young people know, because Sister Vicki is 
has really been making sure that you memorize scripture and this is one of the one of the top scriptures to memorize first corinthians 10 and verse 31 that says so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of god finally from our last section of the chapter in verses 23 to 25 jesus knew what rascals fallen men were he knew it because jesus knew the scriptures we think too highly of ourselves when Adam sinned in Genesis chapter 3, he didn't say, oops, and speak Latin, mea culpa. He took fig leaves and made aprons for him and his wife and hid in the trees when they heard the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They ran away from God. And so when God called out to Adam, where are you? It's not because God didn't know where they were. He has to initiate the truth of their fallenness. We also have more scriptures that Jesus knows. I mean, because Jesus in Genesis, Jesus was there. He was the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That was Jesus. That was the Lord Jesus pre-incarnate. We call that a Christophany. Psalm 14 and verses 1 through 3. Speak of fallen men. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. It says they have all turned aside. They have all turned aside. Because there's one who didn't turn aside, so the all doesn't mean all absolutely. There's one who didn't turn aside. It's the one who turned water to wine in Cana of Galilee. He is the man who did not turn, who did not turn aside. He always, did the, ever, always and ever did the things that were pleasing to his Father. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Or as the song says that young brother Nick likes, no, not one. In the old King James Version. Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, basically says the same thing. David penned both of those Psalms. Romans 10, or Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. Paul quotes that passage. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or in the King James Version, who can know it? Well, John chapter 2 tells us Jesus can. Jesus knows. He's the exception. We don't even know how corrupt and wicked our hearts can be. I'm not that bad. You know how many times I heard that knocking on a door in the villages? Why do you think you're going to heaven? Well, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. I said that prayer at the, the Keiko Retreat Center when I was nine years old. How old are you now? 60. Hasn't been to church since. He was nine. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. 
You see, every man, woman, and child who is a descendant of Adam deserves heaven and all its glories because we just kind of made a little bit mistake and, you know, God's a loving God. Well, yeah, he's loving, but he's also just and holy. No, every man, woman, and child who is a descendant of Adam deserves eternal punishment in hell. Everyone. And the only man who ever walked on the planet who didn't deserve hell, who suffered hell, is Jesus Christ who went to the cross. Do you think that you deserve to go to heaven to be with Jesus apart from God's merciful grace? What did Psalm 14 say? There is none who does good, not even... Talk to me, what, what is it? Not even one. Very good. Somebody mentioned this at the conference. If I was John MacArthur or Steve Lawson or one of these preachers, everybody's silent. We're listening to the Lord speak. I'm not such a good preacher. I need some feedback. I need to know you're listening. Does Jehovah God say through Jeremiah, the heart is divine? No, I recited it. You didn't have it in there. He says that the heart is deceitful, right? The heart is deceitful above all things. Dear ones, this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came to live the righteous life that you and I cannot possibly live. To suffer and die upon Calvary's tree and to shed his blood to forgive our sins. I've been preaching, teaching, and sharing this truth truth for 30 years. 23 as a pastor. That God saves any at all is an act of his sovereign grace. And you know what I hear time and again when I preach it? That's, that's not fair. Paul says it a different way in Romans chapter 9. He says, is there injustice with God then? The more modern translation of that is, that's not fair. Some are going to heaven and some are not. 23 years I've been hearing that. And actually, actually 30 years I've been hearing that. You should be glad God's not fair. Because if he's fair, which means equity and equality across the board, that means we would all go to hell. And that some go to hell shows his grace and his mercy apart from the ones that don't. And it's not a point of being proud because, well, God chose you. So you think because God chose you that you're uh, some highfalutin dude or some highfalutin girl? No. You should be glad God's not fair because by his grace and mercy, he's allowing you to be with him and you deserve eternal punishment for the sins you committed against the holy God and so do I. But if he treated everyone fairly, no one would go to heaven. Because even though we're saved, we still commit enough sins in the day. Unless Jesus thought of the Heavenly Father and spoke of the Heavenly Father and acted on behalf of the Heavenly Father with every second of every day and with every fiber of his being. And the best of us, which is not standing up here in the pulpit, The best of us, even out here in the congregation, the best of us have not even come close to walking as Jesus did. And Jesus was the minimum standard who kept the law perfectly. 
Oh, I'm so glad. Because you and I should be sent directly to H-E double toothpicks. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. It's all of grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me and you. That's sobering stuff when we look at the reality of it. And the doctrine of God's sovereign grace and man's depravity don't make us proud. I want to really emphasize that point, that God is going to allow you and me to be with him for eternity. That should humble us to the dust because we should see the glory of God in Christ from the scriptures. This man who walked in Galilee who turned water to wine and his righteousness was so impeccable. Young people, I want you to know this word. Impeccable. Young people, say it with me. Impeccable. It means there's no possibility of sin for him because he came to be the only way to salvation. What's that word again? Impeccable. Oh, the wonder of our children. Oh, that we would walk with childlike face and faith and, and learn words like impeccable. And that only applies to Jesus. He had no possibility to sin because God sent him. Before the foundation of the world, it was proclaimed in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1 that Jesus would come to die as the only way of salvation. And it humbles us because we all deserve eternal wrath. Moreover, we must recognize we are to trust Christ alone because, again, men are fallen by nature. Proverbs 3 and verses 5 and 6 tell us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Remember, we are to trust Christ Jesus as God with all our heart. And too often we only want to give him a part of our heart and not our entire heart, soul, mind, and strength. Moreover, we want to trust fallen men. <laughs> we want to place our trust in governments and we want to tr place our trust in leadership and we want to trust fallen men. God forbid that you... Trust in me. Don't trust me, even me. I'm a fallen man. Though the Lord has called me to proclaim the truths from the Scripture to point to Christ Jesus and Him alone for the glory of our Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, I will fail. I will let you down. Psalm, 40, Psalm 146 and verse 3 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, lowercase s, lowercase m, in whom there is no salvation. See, that's the qualifier for son of man, why it's lowercase, uppercase, big S, son of big M, man, son of man. That's the Messiah because there's salvation alone in him, in Jesus. But in regular men, sons of men, sons of Adam, there's no salvation. That's the qualifier in 146 verse 3. Psalm 146 verse 3. One of my favorite psalms, by the way. Psalm 146 verse 3. Put 
not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. So there's one man that we can put our trust in, and that's Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Let's turn our attention to the key verse of our message today, the fifth verse of chapter 2. His, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now the first particular blessing we receive from our portion and verse is that Jesus must perform the first sign as God, not as Mary, Mary's son. Now, can I read this again? From the, from the English Standard Version, it says, on the third day, in verse 1, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Verse 2, Jesus also was invited in the wedding, uh, was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And um, verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Verse, 15, verse 5 says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. In verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now uh, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Verse 10 said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And this is why we know that the family of Jesus was there as well, Mary and the Lord Jesus' younger half-brothers. So as we look at this here, this, the particulars of the first, the, the particular blessings we receive from our portion and verse is that Jesus must perform the first sign as God, not as Mary's son. The 11th verse says that these, this was the first of his signs. And when Jesus said these words to uh, Mary, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come, in verse 4. He was not being disrespectful, as I mentioned, and he was not rebuking her. Why is this important? Because, as I mentioned, since his baptism, Jesus was now the Messiah, her God. Now, I'm being redundant here because I already said that, but it's good to repeat things so that we, uh, we can frame them for the more important truths that we're going to look at in just a moment. She's not, though he is her eldest child, he is not speaking to her as his elder, as her eldest child. He's speaking to her as her God. This is why Jesus is fully God and fully man. And at this point, there is this shift since his baptism in the River Jordan. And in fact, lovingly, as Mary's Christ, he addresses her as 
woman and not his mother because he wants her also since we understand from Luke chapter 2 all those things that had occurred in Mary's life in chapter 1 with the angel Gabriel visiting her and then in chapter 2 after she's given birth uh, realizing that the the shepherds had come to that cave where she had given birth and praised God and then she goes to the temple eight days later with her husband Joseph now and Jesus is circumcised and uh, they run into uh, Simon or Simeon who is a prophet and run into Anna, Hana, uh, Anna who is a prophetess and speak prophesy, uh, prophecies and they prophesy over the Lord Jesus as the Messiah and the salvation of Israel and it's said that she hid these things in her heart and here is one other thing she hears from the Son of God Woman, not mother, woman. To emphasize this first sign of his ministry and mission, that since Jesus created man and woman in the garden, and Adam and Eve had become one flesh in the garden, according to Genesis 2 and verse 24, the Lord's first sign as very God was his supplying wine by miraculous manifestation at a wedding. See, he created man and woman from the beginning and brought forth a wedding ceremony, if you will, awakening Adam to this new appropriate helpmate. And at the wedding feast of Cana in Galilee, we see him by his first miracle as he is the creator. He's at a wedding that that which was ordained to present the gospel as we see in Ephesians 5 is right here at the first miracle recorded in John chapter 2. Marriage was not instituted by God at the end of the sixth day because, well, God had nothing better to do. And who doesn't love a wedding? Wedding cake and, you know, that buttercream frosting and the two little figures up at the top. Who doesn't love that? Now, that's, that's not why God created wedding, marriage. He created an ordained marriage from the beginning as a picture of the gospel as it is written in, in, all of, in Ephesians 5 from verse 21 on. But I'll just give you a little taste of it in Ephesians 5 verses 31 to 33. This is, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 33, it was ordained because it proclaims the gospel. And you've heard me say that time and time and time again. But the next particular comes from verses 6 through 9, whereas the servants were only the only ones to witness the miracle. The servants were the only ones to witness the miracle of the water turning to wine. Now, while unbelievers at the feast 
as illustrated by the bridegroom and the master of the feast in verses 9 and 10, benefited from the blessing of the wine. It was only the servants who saw the miracle of the water turning to wine from Christ's command. Did you notice that in the text? Only the servants. And the word servants is translated from the Greek word where we get our English word deacons. Diakonoi. Diakonoi as the plural, uh, diakonos is the uh, is the singular, but diakonoi is used there, the servants, and it's where we get the word for deacons, and not just our deacons, the the four that we have, or the, the two that we have here today, and the two that one went out sick and went out working. Or <laughs> uh, it's the that it can apply to anyone that is a minister and a servant of God. We're more familiar with the word doulos or douloi, which is bond slave, because you're bought with a price. When Christ saved you, that price was an invaluable price, uh, a price without price, if you will, because it's so valuable, because it was the Son of God who laid down his life for us. It benefit, benefits others, but the servants were the only ones that had seen. Amos chapter 3 and verse 7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets, and the servants there, uh, Ovid, like uh, Obadiah, Ovadiah in Hebrew, Ovadiah's name means Jehovah, uh, the uh, servant of Jehovah, or servant of Yah. When the Lord Jesus broke bread to feed the multitudes with two bait fish and five barley fragments, only his disciples witnessed the miracle. Do you remember that? That it was written in Matthew 14 and verse 19. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. It was the disciples who witnessed the multiplying, the servants. But all the people that received those those, uh, miracle fish and wonder bread They got the benefit. The third particular in this thing that we see here is in verse 10. When we see the sublime supremacy of Christ's supply, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And the, and the people have drunk freely than the poor wine. The better tasting wine, and some would apply that, well, yeah, they were getting drunk, <laughs> and uh, since they didn't know any better, then you pour out the the older wine, and then they get snockered. <laughs> That's really not the translation of it. The best tasting wine, the best tasting, if you will, grape juice, but the, the freshest, the sweetest, the most even aromatic that they had. And there could be, you know, as soon as you put water to concentrated grape juice the acids in the grape uh, anyone who knows anything about fruit and fruit drinks that it will ferment and it will become alcoholic but this i don't think is the case they serve the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now the freshest the sweetest wine or juice lingers on the tongue and the taste buds because you you know this from like uh some of you are old enough to remember the pepsi challenge 
You know, remember the commercials for Coke versus Pepsi? And when they would actually do it, I, I do remember that in the 70s we would go out and they'd say, well, which is better, Coke or Pepsi? And here, take the Pepsi challenge. And you go to a store and they're set up here. And so you drink these things that are unidentified and you drink one, but you have to set it down and then take a bite of cracker so that it removes the taste of the first thing that you drank to be able to taste the second one so there's a distinction. So when they, as far as for this party, they didn't necessarily, they weren't eating crackers. They, if you already have the good stuff lingering on your tongue, even the bad stuff will taste better. Um, we learned this, that before I needed the diet Cokes and the diet drinks, that if you weren't used to the taste back in the days when they had saccharin, because my brother was diabetic, if that's all you had to drink and you only had a, like you had all these cans of or all these bottles of the diet stuff and you had only one bottle of the good stuff, what you do is you pour the diet stuff in on, on some ice or whatever and then you put the good stuff right on top. So when you drink the good stuff, your tongue already has that taste. Now that when you drink the stuff that's a little bit more bitter, you don't taste it because you tasted the sweet stuff. Any sugary drink is like that. This is why the taste tester for the taste testers in the Pepsi challenge had to do the cracker thing. But the wine, the same thing, the sweetest, the, the most fragrant to the smell, the freshest. It was, it was put out later. And so miraculous, I believe that it was so good that it even overcame the other stuff. Isn't that, isn't that the sweet truth of the Lord Jesus Christ that you could be having the worst day but when you open up his word and look at something Jesus Jesus brings you the good wine of his person and work it's not always true though is it sometimes we still have the bitterness of the day and we refuse to and most of the time it's because we refuse to really drink we just kind of taste it and spit it out of our mouths. But when we've had a bad day and we really look at it and say, Lord, this is what I need. I need your good wine. The provision of Christ Jesus is always better than the best we can imagine according as it is written in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 that Jesus is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And I, I kind of, in that sense, I like the King James Version because it uses words sometimes that, in something that is indescribable. He is able to give exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Why? Because it's written in Philippians 4 and verse 9 that says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And you notice how I recited that? Just kind of monotone. <laughs> when the Lord Jesus supplies our need, not, our, not the lusts of our flesh, not our desires, or not even what we think that we want. He supplies what he knows best of our need, and he doesn't supply it with the best that we think that he should give us. He supplies according, not to our paltry efforts or our pathetic endeavors, our putrid, smelly works. He supplies according to whose riches and glory? 
His riches and glory. Whose riches? His. Thanks, you. Thanks. Talk to me a little bit. I want to make sure you're alive. Because I know I'm going a little long. Might put you to sleep. Now, what about our verse itself? Mary said, do whatever he tells you. First, this is what the servants of Christ are commanded to do. Obey. We're to obey him. And some confuse this with the works to justify salvation. We don't obey Jesus. We can obey Jesus, actually, until he awakens us to the truth that he is the king. And, and, and he is Lord. We don't have to make him Lord. We just awaken to the fact that he is. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, not of works, lest any should boast. We're, we're talking about those already saved by grace here. Their ser- servants illustrates it's what we call a metaphor. It's a metaphor that those servants were a, or a type. They were a type of what would be Christ's servants in the spiritual realm. Now, though they weren't, they were the servants of the wedding feast. Now these servants in the verse, uh, deacons as we know from the Greek, may have been paid servants. Or they might have been friends who volunteered, either way. And we don't really know. We just know that this is how the ancient wedding was in those days uh, by uh, written testimony. And they they waited upon the tables at the wedding feast. They were not told to stop and give up their positions. So they may have still been doing this, but here's something that's added. Whatever he... Tell whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And so they didn't give up. And and likewise, we don't. When the Lord saves you, do you give up your vocations as teachers, as carpenters, as fishermen, either commercial or you know uh, charter, nurses, tradesmen? You don't give up those positions. You still have a livelihood. And now this is added. But I don't say added as if it's put on top. It's added in the way that it's a, it, is, it enhances whatever vocation that you do have. Whatever that you do do now that you're doing it for him. And I really wish I didn't say it that way. <laughs> whatever you do do. But you get the picture. Note also, this obedience was not a thoughtless endeavor. Mary said, do whatever he he tells you. In other words, to obey Christ must be considered and weighed because of who it is that's speaking to us. She's pointing to Christ, and they may not know at this particular time, uh, as far as the actual history of this particular thing. But as we know who Jesus is, we looking at it and we take this truth, do whatever he tells you, that's why it's given thoughtful consideration. It's not, we're not just blindly doing this. It's whatever he tells us to do. In other words, to obey Jesus Christ must be considered and weighed. Our obedience to Christ must be carefully understood in order to engage our wills to submit to what Christ's will is. Because we're not just doing this, we're doing it for Him. Because our will is engaged to do Christ's will. Obedience is a spiritual endeavor more than it is a matter of the do's or don'ts. And since it's spiritual, see, we get hung up on, we become pragmatists. 
we get hung up on the results of what we do as opposed to the spiritual truth that he said to do it, and now we're doing it. And he's telling what? Angels to do this? Uh, uh, Those who are not fallen or perfect? No, he's telling us. And we're what they call, it starts with an S, what is it? Sinners! We're sinners! And he's letting us do stuff for his kingdom to bring him glory? Wow. Hallelujah. What a savior. Next, true obedience to Christ means complete obedience. To pick and choose what we will obey from our heavenly commander is is the stuff of disobedience, not obedience. What, what, what if he told these guys, okay, fill, fill these with water, and they decide, well, if you, we, need, we need wine. Why don't I go get some grapes? And they take their dirty feet. Well, I'll take off my sandals and start tromping through the grapes. They missed the miracle, for one thing, and they didn't do what he said but they, because they were interested in the results. The servants were commanded to fill the jars with water, and as I mentioned, from the Greek word, to fill completely. And if they filled it half full, make do. You know, you're the carpenter's son from Nazareth. They didn't say that. They did what he said. They and and anything else would have been disobedience to Christ. They may have been full of activity and exerted much energy, but we couldn't call it obedience. And do you feel that way sometimes? When you look at, back at your day, you were full of activity, you were full of energy, you did it with all your might, but did, were you doing what Jesus said to do? Moreover, instruction for obedience to Christ is plain, prompt and practical. Do whatever he tells you, she said to them. And so while we consider its gravity to engage our will, it doesn't mean we can argue or negotiate with Christ about it and how often I do that. Lord, do you really mean that I should do this? Peter did that. Look, you guys, Peter, you had this great confession. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven, guess what? I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going up there, and they're going to beat me, and they're going to have their way with me, and they are going to crucify me and put me to death, and then I'm going to rise. Three days later. Far be it from you, Lord. (laughs) Don't do it. We do that all the time, don't we? We argue, we negotiate. Sheet comes down. All these manner of creeping things in Acts chapter 10. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Never, don't don't let it happen, Lord. I've never, never eaten anything unclean. Peter was a good Jew. What I have cleansed, don't call imperfect, don't call unclean. So as soon as Jesus speaks, we must obey. As soon as his word comes from Scripture and it's illuminated, there's that caveat, if the Holy Spirit illuminates it, immediately we must act. Because we see stuff in Scripture all the time. And then later on, oh, John 3.16? Believe. It's just, it's more illuminated. Oh, yeah, okay. The Word of God is greater than my feelings or failings, I've said before, and it still applies this week. (laughs) 
And if I see something that looks strange, bothersome, or seemingly contradictory in Scripture, then I am in error, not the Bible. If I argue with God's Word like a trial attorney, I am wrong, and it must, I must admit that, or the righteous judge is going to hold me in contempt of court. And though he has saved me, you know, I'm not going to go to eternal condemnation. He has saved me. But I, I'm going to have a hard time obeying the next command that comes around. Because I've already started to build on this track to make myself a disobedient servant than an obedient servant. Obedience to Christ is also a personal. It's also personal and perpetual. The old saying, do as I do. Do, or do as I say, not as I do, does not apply to Christian obedience. We must be examples, moms and dads. Is that right? You don't want to show your life to our, your children of this, uh, 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 a life that is disobedient. It is to you personally, Christian believer, these commands from Christ Jesus. So it's personal, and, but it's perpetual. It's not a one-time deal. Because you were obedient once doesn't let you off the hook. You're not a, you're not a, uh, a lawyer, as it were. You know, I did all these things right here. Don't rely on those things that you've done. Obedience is perpetual. It's continual. It's ongoing. Because she said to them also, do whatever he tells you. So that means all the time. Second, we do, we'll we would do well to consider why the servants of Christ are commanded to obey. We know from this episode that from the miraculous sign performed that Jesus was very God incarnate. Now therefore we obey our Lord Jesus because he is worthy of our obedience. Did you get that? He is worthy of our obedience. This is the Son of God. Christ Jesus is also our Lord and King. We are his subjects. Were we servants of a tyrant, we would have reason to begrudge our tasks, but we're servant, servants of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We serve the Most High God, who is most merciful and gracious. He is a benevolent King who wants the best on our behalf. Remember that He turned water into wine, and not just wine. It was the best of all wines. Do whatever he tells you. Another reason to obey his commands is that Jesus is our precious Savior. Precious Savior. Jesus Messiah had laid down his blessed life for your eternal soul. He suffered God's eternal and infinite wrath for sins that he did not commit. Paying a debt he did not owe for a debt that you and I owe and cannot possibly pay. He became a flesh and bone man to live the righteous life you and I can't live. And then die to death on Calvary's tree to pay sin's wages. Moreover, a spear pierced his side so that by shedding of his blood we have forgiveness of sins. And by his obedience as a son, Jesus has called us as sons to obey him. Do whatever he tells you. We are commanded to obey Christ because it manifests Christ's glory as God. As it is written in the 11th verse here, the, this, first, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. 
There are those who have followed Jesus by a whisper of a still small voice, but their faith has yet to blossom unto trust in Christ and ownership of His gospel. That the gospel becomes our precious possession. They're still they're, they're following. They hear Him. They, they've seen Him. They've, the words of the Scriptures have come forth so that they might follow. But it hasn't become their personal possession yet. They have not gained ownership of it because it's, it's yet theirs. Your obedience is used to the uh, used of the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus. As the Lord Himself said in John chapter 16 and verse 14, He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Which is the next thing I'll say concerning the reasons we should obey Christ. You know, Getting back to the first thing, actually, let me uh, clear that up for you as you're maybe wondering what I'm saying. That your witness there just as the servants did what Jesus commanded and then gave the, the results to the master of the feast, and he tasted. See, they, they were there. They saw Jesus and everything. And now they received the benefit and the blessing of it. But because you as obedient servants, you take part in what Jesus is doing in their lives to bring them into the kingdom. But the next thing, of reasons why you should obey for uh, obey Jesus Christ, because obedience, get this, belongs to the Lord Jesus. It's His. When you obey, don't think that you've done something special. It belongs to Him, because everything does. You didn't have to pay for it, even though we're crucified with Christ in a spiritual sense. You didn't go to the cross by obedience. He did. And so, by his going to the cross as obedient son in Philippians chapter 2, as obedient servant, every obedience that's given to the kingdom through the power of Christ belongs to him. That's a deep theological thought, but it's his. See, I'm not just giving you milk here. I'm giving you some pretty heavy-duty stuff today. It says, again, as I repeat what uh, uh, Jesus told his disciples the night he was betrayed, he will glorify me. He will take what is mine. The Holy Spirit will take what is mine. What is that? The obedience that the Holy Spirit empowered you with in order to obey. He'll take what is mine and declare it to you so that you'll see that in your obedience that belongs to Christ, that's why you are doing it. And you might not see all the implications and impacts of what you've done. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus because the Spirit will take our obedience, which belongs to Christ, and will declare Christ's glory to us and to all those disciples whom he has called. Do whatever he tells you. Oh my. While there are other reasons I can mention concerning obedience to Christ, which is usually where your notes run out. <laughs> but let me, and then actually there are more things, that, but I'm trying to keep this message short. <laughs> he says, ironically, as he's preached the longest message in the, in the church building so far in the last five years. Let me leave you with this last truth. Not only does obedience belong to Christ, but our obedience to the Lord Jesus also shows, guess what? You 
belonged to him. Isn't that great? Your obedience to Christ, because he's the obedient servant, your obedience shows that you belong to him. There are people that can obey what's in here, the legalists and so forth. But when you're doing it for Christ, because Christ commanded you to do it, because he's the obedient servant, and it's his obedience, because he owns all things, when you're obedient to Christ, for Christ, before Christ, it's, it shows that you belong to him. Uh, John's commentary um, when, when, John was, when John said, he must increase, I must decrease, John makes a commentary in John chapter 3, which we'll read tomorrow. Uh, verses 35 to 36, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The disobedient do not only not have life, they cannot even see life. Do whatever he tells you. See, we see life because our obedience to him opens up the spiritual realm so that we see the things of Christ. That's why the disobedient don't get it. That's why the unbelievers don't understand it. First so Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they're spiritually discerned. He doesn't understand them until God opens them up. Finally, number three, we close with this. How, how servants of Christ are blessed by obey, obeying Christ. And there is a myriad of things, but I'm just going to keep it short. While there are many blessings we can glean from the Scriptures, we only have time to cover what I believe are the best. So in every obedience to Christ, we experience the blessing of lightness and liberty. Even in our salvation, we've experienced it because Jesus said to many of you here long ago, even if he didn't say these exact words, he was doing that, but it was there. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus said, come unto me, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christian believer, Jesus gave command to your lost soul, which you obeyed. He said, come to me, and we stopped struggling under dead works. We were obedient to his call, and we came. He commanded, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and we read Christ's word to know more about him and more about his, his holy will and what it was. Then we, found it, and then we found out that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. When we obey, we need not worry about the results of our obedience. Those things are in the nail-pierced hand of our crucified, risen, and ascended Savior. We are truly, really, in our obedience, we are truly free. We're more free in obeying Christ as bond slaves than we were enslaved to sin when we didn't know him. And so that's how we are lightened of our burdens. We embrace the law of liberty. Obedience to Christ blesses us with the glories that glow of Christ's love for us. 
the glorious glow of Christ's love for us is just... Uh, I, I better recite the Scripture. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, Jehovah God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Oh, aren't you glad? Paul said it this way, even though we're unfaithful, he is faithful. Jeremiah, he was just kind of paraphrasing Jeremiah. His love is an everlasting love. It's an eternal love. Therefore, he continues his faithfulness to us. We may read it and nod our heads in understanding of the truth of God's statement. However, it is only by obedience to Christ that our souls are overwhelmed with the flood of eternal love's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, or faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As children of God, when we disobey, the love of God seems cold to us, but it is not because the love of God waxes cold. You know, it can't be, because the Scriptures say in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. It is our disobedience that, is, that has hardened our hearts and made us frosty. Therefore, everything that should have the ray of, war, of warm heavenly sunshine in it is to us as still as the night and as cold as the grave. That's what disobedience is. It is only in obedience that our hearts are softened and sensitive to the great love of Christ. By obedience, our souls become a spiritual sponge soaking up the sweet flow of the Spirit's living water. In your soul, is your soul parched and thirsty? In a thirsty land where no water is, do whatever He tells you, and your thirst for righteousness will be quenched. The last blessing of obedience to Christ brings us to the practical labor for Christ's ultimate kingdom. What will heaven be like? Where obedience is concerned, heaven has no other will but the will of God. And Mr. Spurgeon says it like this. I want to read this quote I have in my notes here. Quote, Dear hearers, if you had never learned to trust Christ and obey Him, how could you go to heaven? You would be so unhappy there that you would ask God to let you run to hell for shelter. For nothing would strike you with more horror than to be in the midst of perfectly holy people who find their delight in the service of God. May the Lord bring us to the complete obedience to Christ. End quote. Is your feast in short supply? Is life not festive because you lack wonder wine from the miraculous sign of the Word who became flesh? Then hear what the woman bids you. Do whatever he tells you. And by the blessing of obedience to Christ, you'll find that what you thought was wine was only poor vinegar mixed with gall. And what Jesus has manifested through your obedience was exceeding abundantly above what you could ask or think. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Trust Jesus. Obey Jesus. Be resolved to serve Jesus and hasten to him because he said, come unto me. Are you resolved to go to the Savior, leaving your sin and strife? Don't wait. He's the true one. He's the just one. He hath the words of life. Indeed, he will hasten. we will hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, the greatest, the highest, 
we will come to thee. Let us pray. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, we have heard your word. Make it purifying to us as, as stone jars filled with water. Father, bring us the joy that comes from the wine of your love and grace. Lord Jesus, help us by your sufficient grace to obey your commands because your commands are not burdensome. Be exalted in our lives this week. Make us holier today than we were yesterday. Make us holier tomorrow than you will make us to be today. In your holy name, we pray. Amen.